Please be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? Here we are. A little bit of social distance, a few smiles, a little giggles, a few masks covering faces, a few cars in the parking lot, am I right? All right, good. The parking lot people can hear me. So we got Amanda up here using that computer Zoom technology stuff. So any way we can do it these days, right? I just got to say, though, I don't feel like I need more Zoom calls in my life. I need more faces that I can look into. Even covered, if I can see eyes, that's, that's a help for me. So we are continuing our series, The Unity Dreamers, and uh, I've enjoyed learning some of these things and relearning them. Uh, it's been a long time since I've looked into some of the nuts and bolts of kind of our peculiarities and why we think the way we do, why we uh, perceive things the way we do, the, th the things that we put as important, the priorities we set. So we've been looking at all of these characters uh, in our study of boring stuff from dead guys a long time ago. But I really, I think there's value in this because we just finished a series in the book of Acts. And what the book of Acts really does is it shows how the triumph of what Jesus gives us, the treasure of what Jesus gives us, it changes ordinary human lives and makes them spectacular. And I think some of what drove our own restoration movement also was from an impulse of the Holy Spirit having his way among large groups of people to try to invite us to this place of unity and uh, applying the truth of Scripture to our real lives. But as you look at a lot of these characters, uh, a lot of people could look at people like the, the Haldane brothers over in Scotland or James O'Kelly from Virginia, North Carolina, coming out of Methodists, or the Campbells, or Barton W. Stone even, and think, you know what? These guys are really nonconformists. They are agitators. They don't play nice with the rest of the kids. They're doing their own thing. They're splitting us apart. And so an irony, I guess, I guess it's an irony. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? Uh, an irony of our movement is that in the short term, these dreamers created a lot of disunity in their quest for a religious unity that was not based on denomination or creed, but based on the scriptures themselves. So early on, uh, the Baptists, they praised the Campbells, uh, Thomas and Alexander Campbell. Um, they there was a high-profile family coming out of a Presbyterian kind of background and movement, someone who beautifully articulated uh, the case for adult immersion as our practice of baptism rather than baby immersion or, or baby sprinkling or pouring. So he articulated that case beautifully. And so the Baptist really rallied around Campbell, but yet there was a a Calvinism in the Baptist church that, uh, at that time that really rubbed the Campbells the wrong way. And so they f soon figured out uh, some of the associations and different Baptists that uh, 
With Alexander Campbell, they had gotten more than they bargained for. So as, as Campbell's ideas began to spread, there were soon other restoration thinkers from within the Baptist church itself who began to share some of these common uh, beliefs and ideas, like we talked about last week, uh, Baptist uh, Walter Scott. And then this week, another guy, a character named Raccoon John Smith. Coming from a Baptist background, and really because of Campbell, uh, uh, taking on some of these uh, restoration ideals. See, a lot of the Baptists at this time really resonated with this restoration plea that the Campbells articulated. Others, though, they dug their heels in against the restorationist growing influence within the Baptist movement. And one of the most important events in the process of separation between the Campbellites and the Baptists was in 1829 when the Beaver Association of Baptists in western Pennsylvania adopted an anathema against the Restorationists and against what was transpiring places like the Mahoning Baptist Association, which we looked at last week with Walter Scott a group of Baptists who in mass decided we're going to give up our creeds and just follow the Bible. Well, this was really a reaction against some of that. So this anathema, which was published in many Baptist journals, began to spell out some of the differences between Baptists and Campbell reformers. So here's just a few of those ideas. The Reformers maintain that there is no promise of salvation without baptism. Another point, that baptism should be administered to all who say that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God without examination on other points. That baptism procures the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That no creed is necessary for the church but the scriptures as they stand. So these were some of the things, the charges that Baptists were bringing against these Campbell reformers. Well, in one of the meetings where these charges were read, the character Raccoon John Smith, one of the more colorful uh, characters in our restoration movement, he stood up and said, I plead guilty to them all. They called him Raccoon John Smith because he said he grew up so rural that for miles around his only neighbors were raccoons. So the, the nickname stuck. Well, it started with this little brush-run church that the Campbells had, had founded. And from that time, in the next couple decades, instead of just a single brush-run church with a handful of members. Now the Campbells were involved, and others, in this restoration plea with a movement of churches that scattered over several states with more than 10,000 members. Most of these members from this Campbell side were ex-Baptists. So now let's catch up on the Stone side of our story a little bit. So we know that the, on the Stone side of our history that they went through considerable turmoil in their earliest years. Um, after the Cane Ridge revival, uh, 
several pre- Presbyterian ministers were charged with heresy before those charges could be carried out. Uh, they renounced the authority of that presbytery to um, uh, hold those, those hearings, those heresy trials. And it wasn't long before uh, Stone, together with other ministers, formed the Christian church. But it was only uh, a matter of uh, less than a year before those other people who helped Stone form the Christian church, they abandoned Barton W. Stone. The first gutting of Christian church leadership came within months of the signing of the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. It's because upon hearing about the strange, ecstatic exercises of the Cane Ridge Revival, a Christian sect known as the Shakers dispatched three missionaries to Kentucky within that year. And the Shakers are different from other Christian groups because they demand total celibacy and a communitarian way of life for every member involved. So this is just my thinking, but trying to force married Christians to stop having sex never seems to turn out very well. But the Shaking Quakers, as they were called, did end up becoming well-known for making uh, wooden furniture of very high quality, Shaker furniture. Well, within months, the Shaker missionaries had converted four Christian church ministers from the Stone Movement, including two of the signers of the Last Will and Testament, Richard McNamara and John Dunlavey. But despite losing so many of their early ministers, the Stone side of the Restoration Movement continued to carry on. And a few years later, in their study of the New Testament, Many of this new Christian church group came to realize that adult immersion seemed to be the only example of baptism that was described in the New Testament itself. They didn't make baptism or by immersion a test of fellowship, but by 1826, Stone could write this, there's not one in 500 among us who have not been immersed. Most people just studying the scriptures, they came to that conclusion. They didn't fight it. They just decided, we want to do this. So they did it. Well, back in 1811, when the Christians were discussing uh, the ways baptism should be carried out, another two signers of the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery Robert Marshall and John Thompson decided that they still held Orthodox Presbyterian views on this subject of baptism. So they renounced the Christian church, and they, re- they returned to Presbyterianism. And so of all the lofty dreams of the restoration expressed in the last will and testament, now only Barton Stone remained of the original leadership. And at that time, he was very discouraged. I have a picture of a frowning, smiley face emoji. People in the cars. But despite all the discouragement, uh, he said he could say this, of the five of us that were left of the Presbyterians, I, I was the only one left, and they sought my life. I don't know what he means by that, but we know that he faced considerable persecution uh, from uh, former or from pres- the Presbyterian church that he left. 
But despite all of this discouragement, the restoration plea to return to the Bible itself as our only sure guide, that just simple message was resonating with a whole lot of people. So by 1807, Stone could count 24 churches across four different states. And it says the following year, they had at a camp meeting, they had 47 different ministers of the Christian church. So it was a growing movement. Um, We know that uh, some uh, restorationists from the O'Kelly movement in Virginia and North Carolina, they moved west and joined forces with the Stone Movement adding adding to uh, the stone movement some much-needed leadership and encouragement. But these weren't the only ones joining the ranks of the swelling Christian church. Barton Stone started a, 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 a journal called The Christian Messenger. And uh, this Christian messenger, he used this to share some of the ideas of, the, of restorationism, to share those thoughts with other people. So it wasn't long before there were Baptists and other denominational ministers in those, in those surrounding states of Kentucky and Ohio who were encountering restoration ideas. And as they studied their Bibles, they began to notice the heavy yoke of their specific denominational structures and long for the simplicity and vibrancy that's displayed in the early church in the New Testament itself. So by 1832, the stone side of the restoration movement had grown to 10,000 members in Kentucky, another 5,000 in Ohio, and many others scattered across Tennessee, Alabama, Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri. So in a a couple decades from some very discouraging and humble beginnings, the stone side of the movement could say this, The plea to restore the primitive faith had spread like, this is Stone's words, like fire and dry stubble. That these ideals of a restoration principle, they were really uh, resonating with the people of that time. So let me take a few moments and talk about the restoration principle and say, well, what, what is it? What are you talking about? Well, first off, they called their movement a restoration instead of a reformation. Well, why is that? Well, Campbell himself believed that the words we use are important. And so if we are reforming something, uh, that implies that there was a problem with it to begin with. So what you do is you reform human systems, but you don't reform something that's already perfect. These early leaders saw perfection in the Acts 2 kind of church. The Acts 2 church that within decades would topple the Roman Empire and take over the known world. Not that these early churches were perfect. If you want a case in point, spend some time reading 1 Corinthians and you can see some sick puppies in there. Uh, They clearly were not perfect. But what was perfect? The vision the ideal put forward in Scripture, the ideal that Jesus held up and which people like Paul articulated, Peter, John, others, that, that ideal of Scripture, that, is, uh, that dream of what the church can be, that vision is perfect. 
And perfection isn't reformed. Perfection is sought and restored. So the thing that they sought to restore was the church in its greatest simplicity, its greatest clarity, its greatest mission and purpose. We're going to sweep away a lot of things to get down to the nitty-gritty. So its greatest power as a people of love united in the Holy Spirit. So if you were coming from an old light, anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian background, like Thomas Campbell was, which is a split of a split of a split of a split, you can see the appeal of some of this. So this is just a simple kind of chart that I think illustrates some of their thinking. Okay, so we have the New Testament church as it existed early on. Well, soon you began to add other things, different kind of forms, Catholicism, then Orthodoxy, and then you have a difference, different than what the Bible actually says. You have different structures in things like church government. Suddenly, tradition is held equal to Scripture itself. A professional clergy who are first in line above just general members or general groups of Christians. And then you build on top of this further with a Protestant Reformation and systems of thinking like Calvinism, a church that formed over a divorce from the King of England, the Church of England. And then you keep adding, you keep on splitting some of the things and add to it on top of that. Tulip, the Book of Common Prayer, Westminster Confession, authority in synods, association, presbyteries, uh, groups having particular creeds that they said, you need to believe this as well, and you sign this to become a part of our group. And they sought unity based on all of these different things. Well, these, these early restoration thinkers. They, the idea was, what if we left all of those things? Instead of adding one more reformation thought or ideal or twist on top of all of this, what if we went back and tried to restore the simplicity of the very beginning? And that was their dream and their ideal. And maybe there's a lot of people in history who have said, you know, that's impossible. Um, it'll never happen. But these guys, they held that dream and they didn't let go of it. That we can go back to the simplicity and restore something of our simple beginning and we can find unity in that place instead of all of these other things of 2,000, accumulation of 2,000 years that divide us and separate us from each other. Well, the two most famous quotes of Thomas Campbell were this, let, the, uh, let us speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where it is silent. And the second most favorite, uh, famous quote attributed to Thomas Campbell was, the church of Christ upon the earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. All of these divisions, that's not the heart of God. It's not what the Lord desires. Well, it's easy to denounce divisions as wrong, but it's not necessarily very easy to propose a means of achieving unity. I think any Christian anywhere recognizes, yeah, 
dividing, all the divisions, I, sometimes that breaks the heart of God. But what are the things that we can stand together on to find common ground in unity? So for the Campbells and other early leaders, they believed that unity could be found in returning to the simplicity of the New Testament forms, the simplicity of forms that we find in practice and use in the Bible itself. So this is a church historian, quote, Bill Humble. I'm getting a lot of this sermon material from some books that he wrote. A return to the faith and practice of the New Testament would end the differences among denominations and restore the essential oneness of Christ's church. That's what his description is of some of what their thinking was. And, and you can look at that and say, you know, that's impossible. That was naive to even float that idea or attempt that. I'm not saying these guys were rational. I'm not saying they were perfect. I'm saying they held a dream, and they didn't let go of that dream. So what they were attempting to do was to search for and apply simple New Testament answers to the questions they had. So let's look at a few of these. So a restoration principle applied to issues like church membership. How does one become a part of the church? Is it because you have signed on to a certain creed? Is it because your picture is on a board outside in our foyer? A person becomes a part of the church, they said, when they express their allegiance in an act of naturalization, they said, baptism. The New Testament church, it didn't seem to require anything more than faith and faith expressed in the act. Baptism, a kind of marriage, if you will. So we won't require anything else either, they said. If this is what seemed to be the norm for them, that can be the norm for us. Another restoration principle applied to uh, another area that they had questions on, church worship. In early American churches at the time of the Second Great Awakening, there was a bewildering array of activities that denominations labeled as worship. This qualifies for worship, this, that, and the other. But what does the New Testament itself show regularly is the acts of worship? Well, they began to notice certain patterns. They seem to have this there, the Lord's Supper, singing, praying, teaching. These seems to be the things that were constantly practiced and held before the people. Okay, church organization. The New Testament, when you read through it, it doesn't actually authorize any organization above the local church. Therefore, are we not free to get rid of all of that extra hierarchy and Episcopal systems bigger than a local church and its elders? And further, the Bible doesn't seem to make a distinct distinction between a professional clergy and your regular Joe member. In fact, it talks about all disciples as being a part of a priesthood with authority and responsibility. That's what we find in the Scripture, they would argue. So, a 
Um, well, I think I don't know how to uh, uh, what words to use. It's not always as simple as that. And if you study the scripture, sometimes there are certain problems that are hard to figure out. So a question would, would be reasonable to ask is this. Why do we practice some biblical traditions and not others? We read about certain things in scripture like the practice of a holy kiss or observing the Lord's Supper at night or practicing foot washing or why don't women wear head coverings in, in, in our tradition here? You know, I think you could, I think it read from 1 Corinthians 11.10 and come to a reasonable conclusion that, uh, yes, as a woman, I should wear this sign of authority uh, on my head, that you could argue that biblically, and that would not be an unreasonable, biblical, um, biblically deduced practice. So really what the early restoration leaders were wrestling with, it was a hermeneutical problem. What appears to be universally obligatory for all churches, they would say, and what seems to be more of a cultural issue of that time. So that was what they were, one way that they, these early restorationists were looking at this. Is this something that was practiced church-wide from what we can tell? Or is this a particular situation there, a particular cultural practice of that time? So, you know, and, and I think that there's room for us to take up other traditions at, at possibly and let go of other things that we see there. But, you know, I'm... I'm kind of a shy guy, and I, a holy kiss is kind of a tough thing for me. So I'm just not here, there, and other. But I was a missionary in, in Tanzania, and there's lots of Europeans there. And uh, it's just part of their culture. They do that cheek thing, you know, you know, on both sides of the cheek. And Anyway, I, I always appreciate how tall I was, so I could, like, go... Put a hand out there, good American handshake before all of this. So there's, there's a difference in our culture and our cultural understanding of what, what a kiss is and what a kiss is for. And, uh, but there was something different in the way that they practice it there that, you know, Paul commands us, greet one another with, with a holy kiss as part of that, that practice and that culture. So all of these kinds of things, they're, they're wrestling with what... Are we obliged to follow, and what do we just need to have some charity on and liberty with? So it's kind of an interesting question. And I think we can all admit that it's not always easy to figure these things out. Uh, but I think historically, a bigger problem for us as a movement has come from the restoration ideal, let's speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where it is silent. We tend to agree on the things more easily where the Bible clearly speaks. There's no wiggle room there. But what about the silence of Scripture? 
That has split churches, not just our and our movement, but across the board from the very beginning. So the question is this. When the scriptures are silent on certain issues, is that silence a prohibition? Or does the silence of scripture allow some freedom of expression to address our particular circumstances? From the very beginning of our movement, we have wrestled with that. Uh, We have built vats of ink and cut down forests exploring these issues. This has been a dividing line for us. And we, the problem is there's an ambiguity there that we tend to draw the line in different places and come with different under, understandings. Um, but even the most hard-nosed, potentially legalistic among our movement still makes certain accommodations that, strictly speaking, are not authorized in Scripture. Uh, and this ambiguity in the silence of Scripture, it seems to be a favorite place for the devil to play uh, and a place where we most desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit. So in 1830, before the uniting of the Stone and Campbell sides of the movement, Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone met together and they were amazed to find all of the different things that they agreed, on, agreed about. But there were some differences they had. And one of those issues was having fellowship with people who had not been baptized with immersion. Stone argued that there's nothing in Scripture to forbid me to, from communing and fellowshipping with someone who has not been baptized by immersion. So Stone was thus using the silence of Scripture to allow a certain practice. But Campbell responded, it's not enough to say there is no command against it. Is there no command for it? Then you shouldn't be doing it. Thus Campbell saw in this case the silence of Scripture as saying, no, you have no authority to do it. But this kind of logic can only take us so far. I think it was an argument, and uh, uh, between the two men, uh, Campbell, Alexander Campbell was more of a pit bull with an argument. He was strong and forceful. He was a very intellectual man, and he made his case, and he carried the argument not by the, the logic of it itself, but by the force of his personality that Stone was just kind of backed off and quiet about it then. But this kind of logic can only take you so far. For example, did you know that the New Testament does not expressly authorize the construction and use of church buildings? Why, why is this table here? Is this something that the, that the New Testament authorizes? By what authority did someone choose to put this here? By what authority would someone choose to move this to the side or use this and put this one here? Why is this one here in the middle and this one to the side? What authority did someone have to do this and make this decision? 
See, we can draw that line a lot of different places. Later on, even Alexander Campbell had to admit that some expedients like church buildings and things like that, they're necessary to, to work things out. Later on, Campbell himself supported a missionary society, which, uh, where do you get that from the New Testament? And that was the argument that they used against him later. So at different times on different issues, people are drawing these lines a lot of different places. In every conflict that I've been tied up in, myself and in my church and growing up and being a part of Churches of Christ, I ask myself a question, and this is just me. This is, here's a Calvin quote, if you want one. In the absence of clear, a clear biblical mandate, there are certain things that are clear from Scripture are more clear that you can make a point with. In the absence of clear, a clear biblical mandate, at what point has my clinging to either my law or my liberty moved me or others away from the fruit of the Holy Spirit, away from the desire of, of God, and away from the prayer of Christ for the unity of his disciples? Another, so much of our humanity, our pride, our hubris gets tied up into these issues where we take stands. But we have to ask the question, at what point did I give up on love in order to win an argument or be proven right? At what point did I cease to see you as my brother and see you now as my adversary? the one who's given me trouble, the one who just doesn't get it, the one who's frustrating and annoying me. When we begin to let go of the lens of brotherly love and instead see each other through the lens of whatever issue that we have, can we not see that we're losing something? something that's precious to the heart of God? I find great wisdom in Barton Stone's words that he wrote in the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. We will that preachers and people cultivate a spirit of mutual forbearance, that they pray more and they dispute less. Can we pray more and dispute less? If we did that, do you think it might help us deal with our issues on the silence of Scripture? So, uh, the Restorationists, they made this phrase, uh, they took it and they made it popular. Another phrase that I think is helpful to us. Um, Jason, you can come forward uh, for songs. And this, this phrase, um, I'll put it up there for you. Um, as always, we, we offer an invitation, so whatever your needs are, uh, we want to stand beside you, uh, putting on the Lord in baptism or uh, for the prayers of this church.
anything uh, that we can do to help you, you, you have an opportunity to do that and come forward in just a moment. But this is the phrase I want to leave us with. And this was actually written by a Lutheran before our restoration movement. But our restoration early leaders took this and said, yes, this expresses what we feel and our ideas about these things. Not that they always got it right, and not that they weren't ever divisive or uh, pride won out or other things like this, but this is what they said, and this is what they said among all of the different groups that they were working among. This is from a, a Lutheran a, a couple generations before this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Can we have that as a beginning ground? Can we have just the simplicity of what the Bible says itself, that we can all agree on it says itself, to be the starting point for building something among each other? That was their dream. So uh, you let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing together now.